Hi, this is Tommy from Jukebox the Ghost and Narc Twain, and you're listening to We Podcast and We Know Things. Hey there, this is Nigel Bach, creator of the Bad Ben Trilogy, and you're listening to We Podcast and We Know Things. It's more than an intelligent mind can comprehend. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special bonus episode of We Podcast and We Know Things. My name is Greg Hall, and joining me from Los Angeles, California, thank you very much for taking the time, legendary video game composer Grant Kokerp. Grant, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. No, no worries. Uh, I don't know about legendary, oh. but I'm certainly, I'm certainly a composer. <laughs> yeah. Legendary is an understatement. <laughs> I, w- I wish my wife thought that. <laughs> Well, I appreciate it. How are you this morning? I know uh, for you, it's the morning right around here. It's about 1 o'clock p.m., but out there in Los Angeles, uh, you're just waking up? or? Well, yeah, I get up early because you get the kids to school, right? So, uh, yeah, it's night. It's, you know, it's sunny, but it's slightly chilly for California, so a bit annoying, really. Oh, yeah? What's, still, what is yeah. it out there? Uh, I guess we, I guess what the temperature is, I do it in Celsius, right? So, let me look at what it says here. It says it's on, 11 Celsius. I guess that's what, like... 50-something, maybe 40-something, 50, maybe something like that. It's it's very rare that Philadelphia, Pennsylvania has better weather than Los Angeles, California. <laughs> I expect so. <laughs> so we have a loaded uh, bunch of questions for you today, so let's just dive right into them. Uh, first and foremost, when and how did you fall in love with music? Uh, I guess that's my dad, really. Like When I was a little kid, my dad was a massive like uh, big band uh, Frank Sinatra fan, so every Sunday he'd like uh, play his LPs on the record player and it was always like Glenn Miller and uh, especially Frank Sinatra. So I guess that's the stuff that I got, I heard first of all, it was always the old stuff like that. So I'm, I still love Frank Sinatra to this day because it reminds me of my dad so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I guess I like the old big band stuff really. So yeah, that was my first, my first kind of taste of what music was like really. Uh, what other music besides Frank Sinatra did you listen to growing up that kind of inspired your sound? Um, so I was a metal fan, really. So my first kind of, I mean, you know, I, I think you're younger, you get into a bit of pop music, so I did that, as everyone does. Yeah. When I got slightly older, I started to play guitar about 11, mm-hmm. uh, and I kind of liked always rock music. So my, my, my kind of my two favorite albums that really got me going were ACDC's first album and also uh, Queen Sheer Heart Attack. So they were the two albums that I kind of played to death and wore them out and bought them again. Yep. Um, so I liked Angus Young's guitar playing. I loved Brian May's guitar playing. So that kind of, that was what, what, what most my favorite stuff at the start and then I got kind of more metal as it went on yeah Queen probably one of my top five favorite bands of all time uh, are you looking forward to that biopic that's coming out oh definitely yeah it should be great yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm definitely looking forward to that now I heard a story um, and I know my co-host Sam he, he couldn't be here today but he is definitely interested as well is it true that you got Eddie Van Halen's guitar it's not his, but he gave me a guitar. Oh, he gave so, you a guitar. Um, okay. Yeah, so I was like, I used to play in a rock band called Little Angels in the UK. Mm-hmm. I was a trumpet player in their horn section. Mm-hmm. Me and, a, and so we did like loads of, loads of kind of touring back in the day. And we used to do um, like our own gigs in our own right in the UK, but also we used to do, you know, you know, opening acts for big acts. So we did a Van Halen tour, a full Bon Jovi tour, Brad Adams, ZZ Top, like playing all the big arenas and, you know, around Europe. Mm. And so we did Van Halen in, I guess it was probably 91, 92, I think. Uh, and Eddie was, you know, me being a guitar player too, Eddie was the friendliest man in the world. He was such a nice guy. And um, I remember we were playing Paris just before we came back to the UK to do the UK shows. And he said, you know, and he took me to the side, into a little side room, and I thought I'd done something wrong. <laughs> and he said, yeah, he said, Grant, you know, I, you know, I know you're a big fan of ours. Because I got to sound my Van Halen one album, because Van Halen were a big band for me when I, was, when I was a kid growing up, I learned to play guitar. 
He said, I'm going to give you a guitar. I couldn't believe it. I said, you're kidding me, right? He said, no, no, I'm giving you a guitar. So he gave me a guitar. One of the, I've got to look at it right now. It's one of the, uh, the Ernie Ball Music Man uh, Van Halen guitars. So yeah, I've had it since then. So it's my pride and joy, yeah. Wow, that is an incredible story. I yeah, mean, you know, do you have anything else kind of stories from the road before you, you know, you were in a few, we'll call them, I'm using air quotes here, traditional bands before projects, before you went on to become a composer full-time. Yeah. Do you have any yeah. other stories you want to share? Uh, I guess nothing that's like listenable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you know, like, you know, when we did, you know, doing those big gigs is spectacular. So we did like, when we did the Bon Jovi tour, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead tour, that was a gigantic tour. We were playing to 90,000 people in, in arenas in Germany. It was like incredible. Really. So to get to that level is, you know, spectacular. Uh, and even though we're with, we're with the opening act, it's still like you don't you, those those things don't come along very often in life. You know, to get to know Bon Jovi a little bit and to know Ed Van Halen and we did Billy Idol too. He was a good guy. I mean, you know, it was it was a really great fun. You know, as a bunch of guys on the road traveling around, you know, those doing those gigantic gigs, it's just the best fun ever, right? So, you know, nothing will equal. I, 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 I don't say nothing will equal that, but it's that's a very special time. So I was very lucky to be a part of that. And, um, you know, look back with it, look back at it very fondly. It was a great laugh. So then what inspired your transition from doing that on a full-time scale to almost getting into, you know, being a composer, particularly in the video game space? That was bizarre. So, um, it was a complete fluke. Um, um, so after the little angels kind of split, I was still playing in like rock bands, you know, in my local area. So, you know, playing pub gigs and stuff to make money. And um, one of the gig, the bands that I played for, um, the keyboard player was called Robin Beanland. And um, we got to be good friends, of course. We had known him for a long, very long time. And I, one day he announced that he'd got a job. And I was like, what? Like, no one I knew got a job. Like, we'd all kind of sign on unemployment insurance and then go and do a tour or play some gigs and sign off it and sign back on again, you know, so we're constantly unemployed. Um, and he said, I've got a gig. I'm, I'm going to go and work for a company called Rare. I was like, what? He said, yeah, writing music for your video games. I was like, you're joking, like, that's the job, you know? I said, yeah. Anyway, I mean, no one I knew got a job. Off he went, I couldn't believe it. So about a year and a half went by. Um, they stayed in touch, of course, because we're good friends. So, you know, Grant, you've been on unemployment benefit on and off for about 11 years, because I hadn't been. <laughs> I, left, I left university, at, I, got, I did a music degree, I left university at 22, and it was I was 33. said to me, you know, don't you think you should try and get a job? I was like, well, you know, what can I do? I'm completely useless. He said, well, you know, why don't you try writing music video games? Um, and I mean, you know, I did play a lot of games at the time, so I knew, I knew what they sounded like, but I never once thought about doing it. So he I had like a thousand quid uh, pounds left in my name. So he, he recommended some gear for me to buy a bottle copy of Cubase and a, a synthesizer and, a, you know, bits and pieces. Uh, and um, he said, right, you know, write some music. So uh, I sat about writing music for video games at that point. <laughs> never did it before. Like when I was at university, I had to, you have to pass the kind of harmony exam uh, you know, at least you have to pass it within the four years that you're there. And I failed it three times out of four because I was so bad at harmony and, you know, composing and all that. I was just terrible at it. Um, so um, I wrote some music over the course of about a year. And I sent Rare um, five cassette tapes over that year. Uh, I never got a reply. And out of the blue, I got a, a letter saying, please come for an interview. Uh, so I went down and uh, Dave Wise interviewed me with Simon Farmer, who was the general manager at the time. And... You know, surprised I got the job. Couldn't believe it. So uh, that was that. So, you know, I packed up my stuff, left my mother, because I've lived with my mother at home at 33 still, <laughs> and uh, went down to Rare to work there. Now, was Rare based out of the UK? Yeah, yeah, oh. in the Midlands. So I kind of, it was like I was in the north, it was in the Midlands, so I guess 
100 miles maybe mm-hmm. now your first project with rare that was uh with the killer instinct franchise am i right that's sort of yeah like i did a couple of things right at the start so i kind of because i was a guitar player robin was doing uh killer instinct on the arcade machine killer instinct 2 mm-hmm. so <clears throat> he got me to play guitar on some tracks and some trumpet as well um also i was doing i was converting dave wise's music from donkey kong country 2 diddy kong's quest to work on the original big brick game boy mm-hmm. but they were my first two tasks really now, what what was it like working for Rare at that time? Rare was, at that point in the late 90s, on their way to becoming one of the most legendary studios of its time and even of today. Uh, but what was it like working for Rare at those times? It was amazing, right? Because like, they'd just kind of done Donkey Kong Country 1, which was a massive big deal mm-hmm. and sold like 10 million copies, something like that. Uh, and it really put Rare on the map. And, I mean, then Nintendo bought half, you know just under half the company it was the first time they would ever invested in a western company it made all the news on on the tv in the uk it was like big you know a big deal um so when i got there they, they'd just done that it was like, spectacular so you know i was so excited to be there I, could, I think everybody at that time was so excited to be there everybody felt it was a magical place hmm. that everything we did just turned to gold at that point all the games we did just did so well it was just a great bunch of people and the stamper family were who owned the company were just fantastic. They, they treat the staff really well. It was just, you know, Tim was there. Chris's brother was there. Stephen, the other brother was there. Carol, Tim's wife worked there. Louise, Tim's sister worked there. Um, the mum and, t- mom, mom and dad stamper worked there. Like Carol's dad, everybody was just family list owned the company. So it was this brilliant place to be. Uh, and I was, you know, for me to actually have a job that was getting paid for regularly was incredible. So I was, you know, so grateful to be given the chance to be there at that time. It was amazing. Now, some for the people that don't know, and you add any that I may miss, um, we're talking Donkey Kong 64, Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo-Tooie, uh, GoldenEye 64, Grab by the Ghoulies, uh, Viva Pinata. Mm, Perfect Dark. Perfect Dark. Yeah, uh, just for anybody out there, these are the games we're talking about that Grant had a... Uh, a huge hand in in the composition. What did you get a sense back then that not only these soundtracks but these games overall would be cherished and beloved as they've become? Never, like I never once for a minute thought I'd still be talking about Banjo Kazooie like twenty years later. <laughs> it's it's Banjo's twentieth year this year, I think. Yep. I mean, you know, you, you know, you think you write a bit of music and and maybe it lasts for a few weeks, then someone everyone gets sick of it and forgets about it. You know. Hmm. Um, you know, I never for once thought I'd be still talking about it today. It's incredible. I mean, all that stuff, the golden eye, perfect dark, all of it, you know. I never thought about that. And also, Rare was a very secret place, so Rare never gave any interviews. We never did that stuff. Like, Tim and Chris used to always say, you know, we're not pop stars, we just make games right, let the games do the talking, we don't need to do interviews. So nobody got to talk to anybody at Rare, so it kind of created a bit of a mystique about the company. Mm. And we kept producing these great titles that, that, that just, you know, sold gazillion copies and everyone loved. Um, and just kept quiet about it <laughs> doing the interviews it was weird mm. that's the way it was right no one no one thought it was it was odd we just did it that way so you know for me to still be thought about after all these years for that stuff is just incredible I, I never it never it never once gets tiring for me to have to talk about Banjo Kazooie ever right. it's amazing right now Rare was acquired by Microsoft in the I believe the 2000s somewhere in there and they did the Connect Sports games but recently in the last couple of years Rare Replay came out um, right. And kind of to revisit the old Rare games like Jet Force Gemini and Conquer and all those great games from the Rare heyday. Did you have, uh, I know there was some like developer diaries and stuff like that in there. Did you have a hand in that at all? 
Yeah, I'm in there. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, when I did my interview, I, I, I cursed quite a lot because I'm quite foul mouthed. Uh, and so, quite a lot of it they cut out because they couldn't use it. I didn't realise at the time. Um, I did. I was at GDC and um, uh, Craig, I can't remember, the guy that runs the place, I've got his name, Duncan, is it? I can't remember his name. Anyway, said, can you do some interviews? So I did, so I did it in a hotel room there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, I was a part of that. So that, that you know, Banjo Kazooie's had sort of a, in those games have had like three three bites of the cherry, really, because they came back out again on the Xbox, XBLA, you know, the, the Xbox Live. Mm-hmm. And back, back out again on the Rare Replay. And Rare Replay is such a great bargain, like 30 games for $30 is fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, even another generation of people discovered Banjo Kazooie and, you know, and Conquer and all those games. So it's been pretty weird how those games have kind of stood the test of time, really. Yeah, and not, let's, let's not forget, like, the speedrunning community as well. Uh, yeah. Oh, revised yeah, a lot of games. Yeah, yeah. I happen to be a part of uh, a couple different game speedrun communities. I I, uh, I run Super Mario Bros. on the NES and on a couple other games as well. And you know, Banjo Kazooie always at the big marathons, the the AGDQs and SGDQs of the world um, has its, a huge following through that. And even now with Ukulele getting broken to heck and and uh, speedrun, you know, sixteen minute runs here and there. And uh, so the whole game, sixteen minutes. It's insane. Wow, I can't, I can't believe it. Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. So, and you know, you had a hand in ukulele, and even even uh, recently with Mario plus Rabbids Kingdom Battle, I believe a Hat in Time as well. Um, we'll get into that in in a little bit. But specifically speaking, back in the rare days, what was the most difficult score you worked on back then? Whether it be length, writer's block, what have you? I don't think I really find any that difficult. I don't, I don't mean that in a blase way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that um, being part of rare. Being a staff composer, you got used to like starting at nine in the morning and finishing at five at night, right? So you, you went to work and at nine o'clock you started writing music. And you know, to do that for 12 years is a, is a great regime to get into. So I guess I don't really have writer's block. I might not write anything that's great, but I'll still <laughs> I'll write something, right? So I think um, that was all part of it. So I didn't really feel like anything was hard. The hardest year I had there was when I was doing uh, Banjo Tooie, Donkey Kong 64, and Perfect Dark at the same time. Mm. Um, that was a kind of tough year, year and a half, because it was just tough to get through all that amount of music. And mm. also on, on banjo, I did all the sound effects as well. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so, so you know, <clears throat> that was probably a little bit hard, but it was rewarding because, it, it, you know, it's great fun and the teams were great and we all got along well. So I don't think I found it hard like that. Mm. I, I, just, I just got on with it, I think. Were there any games that you uh, may have had the chance to work on, but for some reason it didn't work out? Um, I did start cameo off, um, and then then Steve Burke got hired and he took me did that one. And that was an uh, Xbox 360 launch title, if I remember right. Uh, yeah, I think so. So yeah. I, did, I started that, but I was kind of also doing, I think probably Grab by the Goo. Was it Grab by the Goo? I can't remember when it was when it must have been. Yeah, something like that. So when Steve started, it made sense for him to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, you know, I was happy that this, all the stuff I did it rare. There wasn't one thing that I did I thought I don't like it. Like I loved all those games. Like, there wasn't one single bit of any of them that I thought I wish I hadn't done it. Mm-hmm. So I was very lucky to get the titles out that I was given to work on because they all turned out great and just good fun, you know. Now you've also dabbled in movie composition, TV composition as well. What's the difference between writing a score for a game as opposed to, let's say, a film? Well, with a movie, it's, a movie's linear, right? It never changes. So you get to sculpt the music exactly to the action. So you can catch the big love moment, the big sad moment, the big adventure moment. It's always the same, right? You get it, you can sculpt it completely. When you work on a game, you have to work on that. You have to think about that interactive nature. So not every player is as good as the other player, right? So some players take ages to do something. Some players do it really quick. Mm-hmm. 
to try and bear that in mind. So the whole point about trying to get some kind of interactive music thing going, that's what it's all about, right? I don't feel like it's quite there yet. Um, in Banjo-Kazoo, we did have that thing where the music would change depending on what area you worked in, you walked into, so it would keep the same tune going, but a different arrangement, that kind of morphing thing we did. Right. So, so that's the biggest difference. You know, you still get to write cinematic sequences in games, so you still write them like a movie, but the in-game play part, you have to think about what somebody might be doing. You have to not don't get too big, don't get too small. You've got to think about what you're writing about because it's got, it's got to last a long time. And also, you know, people might listen to the music for two hours, right? <laughs> listen to the, the same tune over and over again. So you better make sure that it's a tune that people are going to like or they're going to get tired of it pretty quick. Yeah, not just a seven-second loop. Yeah. So, like, when I first started Rare, like, Tim Stamper and Greg Mayles are the two guys that I work with very closely. Um, they were massive Nintendo fans, obviously, and he used to always say to me, listen to the music in Mario, listen to that music, listen to it over and over and over again and not get tired of it. You have to do that. So that was a big pressure on the composers at Rare. We all felt that pressure mm. to try and write stuff that would that you could listen to around and around and around and not get tired of it. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying I achieved it, but I tried I try my best. Um, I do, I, and I do think sometimes working back in those days, because you had such limited resources, um, you didn't have a massive, huge, great, you know, you know, palette of, of instruments because you just couldn't fit it in the machine, right? So you had to use the same little small palette over and over again. So you really had you, be, you had to write a good tune with a decent set of chords. There was no one finger on the keyboard making a great, fantastic noise like you can these days. It, just, it wasn't like that. Mm-hmm. So I do find a lot of the guys from back then do know how to write a good tune um, because that's all you had. You had to try to do that. That was your best, your best, your best hope. Now I take. I take a lot of that mindset too in the speedrunning community and that that kind of world as well is because you can't speedrun a game you don't absolutely love because you're going to be playing that over and over and over and failing 99% of the time until you get it right. So I'm I'm with you there, but what is your process? So let's get let's say you either, you know, you're assigned or you know, get hired for a project. What's that process like from beginning to end? Um so like I'm not a very intellectual composer. Um like, I don't, like, sit and pontificate. Like, I just literally, I'll look at the brief or talk to the people that I'm working for, like Davide Soliani, when I'm working on Mario Rabbids. Um, he'd say, it's the Ancient Garden, the first level. It's, it's he'll give a brief description of it, and he might show me some video, and I'll start to write. Um, and so, you know, I think any composer worth the salt is going to get some kind of mind's eye picture before they even start on, on a keyboard. Mm-hmm. So if it was, like, a frozen ice castle, I'd be thinking about, like pizzicato strings and you know celeste and glockenspiel and spiky instruments that make it sound like it's an icy place if it's a lovely warm forest i might think about some warm strings and bassoons and warm instruments like that you know so i think that you do get that kind of mind's eye picture before you even start on the keyboard um but i just literally will load up a sample let's say it's a bassoon and i'll mess around with it till i hear a tune that i like or play some chords that i like and then go from there um i think i'm I'm sort of a very instinctual composer i'm not that kind of over thinking person mm-hmm. and I think that I'm not a great polisher so if it comes out crap it's just going to have to start again and <laughs> that's just the way it is I don't like to go back and alter stuff too much I'm not great at that mm. um, so yeah and that that really is my process like I don't have anything there's nothing spectacular goes on I don't, I don't sort of sit in a darkened room and wait for the hand of the Lord to hand me a song it doesn't work like that I just I'm very working like I sit at a keyboard and plink and plonk away until I hear something that I like and that's how I do it now, what about length of time? How long does the average project take you? Let's let's use Mario plus Rabbids uh, for an example. That was a long time. Like, I guess it must have been two years, probably plus, mm-hmm. maybe a bit longer. Um, that's just because the game was big, and 
it was two and a half two and a half hours of music. Right. So it's a lot, right? So I literally wrote something for that game every day for that period of time, or I worked on it every day for that period of time. There was no days I, I, did, I didn't do it. I did it every day for that for the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know that's a big thing, like doing like, last year. I did what that I did that ukulele. I did Drop Zone, Ghostbusters. So I did, I did quite a lot that last year, uh, and I kind of learned that I'm probably not quite not do that much again. It's a bit much to do, mm-hmm. uh, but um, yes, yeah, so, you know you just have to allot your time and you know do you do your best. Um, you know, working with Ubisoft guys, you know, as I say, Davide and the guys over there was, was an absolute fantastic experience. Like we, we got on like like we're best mates now. You know, it's like we you know we've been talking to each other probably every day for two and a half years. So. We are best mates now, you know. Yeah. Um, the guys in Paris too, like Romain Brio, who was the audio director there. Um, so yeah, you know, that's that's how it works. And yeah. you just have. To, I, I, am, I am quite a fast writer. I can write fast when I have to do. Mm-hmm. So like, I think at end of Mario, there was like two weeks to go, and Romain said, "Yeah, there's like uh, here's ten minutes of cutscenes to do." I was like, "What?" Like you know. Um, so um, yeah, I think when I'm under pressure, I, my wife also says that I do work well under pressure. I, I'm not convinced that I do, but um, I think I can turn it up when I need to. Now, Nintendo kind of licensing out Mario over to Ubisoft for, you know, the, the crossover with the Rabbids, that's a high-profile deal. And you, when you got hired for that, I'm sure you got hired for that way, way back in its earlier stages. Um, and you've had to keep that secret of that game until it was revealed at E3. You know, that's a lot of pressure to have to keep a secret like that. What was that like? Well, you know, you're just dying to tell everyone, aren't you? Because like to work on Mario for me, yeah, for anybody in video games, is like he's the he's royalty, right? Like he's the top guy, right? You know, to, to get to work on him was amazing, and get to, to get to be asked in the first place. And like I didn't even know it was Mario when they first asked me. Oh, okay. It been, I guess it was like what was it? Maybe November 2015, maybe. And that had been that when I got an email from uh, John uh, Gianmarco Zana, who's a producer at Ubisoft Milan. Just says we've got a game you think you might be a good fit for. Are you interested? I was like, yeah, of course. No, I had no idea what it was. Um, and then we got the con- we got the kind of NDA sign, and it was called Rabbit's Kingdom Battle. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I knew, I, knew the, I knew the characters. My kids watch the cartoons, and I, they're a, they're a funny bunch. And I, I kind of feel they predated the Minions, really, in that kind of craziness. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so this would be great fun. So I think it was probably like that was November 2015. So I think they flew me out to meet in Paris, maybe April 2016. Took a little while to get the contract sorted out. Um, when I got there, um, they kind of met me at the door and they all sort of walked me in. I was very official. I kind of thought it was a bit weird. And I went to the back of the studio in Paris, right to the very back and like through some big locked doors. So I thought it was a bit strange because it was like, why is this, why is there so much security for a, for a rabbit's game, you know? And then I got led into a, get led into a side room away from the dev team. And it was Davide was there with Romain Brio, the audio director. And he sort of sat down and said, well, I suppose I'm about to show you the game. And I said, yeah, yeah, nice, it'd be nice to see you, you know? And he turned on the TV and Mario was stood there. And um, I was like, oh, and he sort of, I sort of perhaps had been playing Mario before I got there a bit bored, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he started to move the controller and Mario was moving. And he said, uh, I said, uh, what's this? It's a Mario game. Did, not, did no one tell you? I said, no. Like no one told me to that point. <laughs> <laughs> kind of got there and went, oh my God, I'm working on a Mario game. And I could just about had a heart attack. And he said that I sat there for the first hour, like really pale face, not speaking. And they thought I didn't like the game. I was just so scared thinking, how on earth am I going to, write music for Mario when Koji Kondo's written all that fantastic stuff for donkey's years. How am I, how am I going to do it? I just thought it wasn't good enough. Um, so the fear set in pretty early. <laughs> so, yeah. No, you you were the first Western composer to work on a Mario game, were you not? Well, I think so. That, that made it even more. I couldn't work. I kept thinking, 
who else has done this? I couldn't think of anybody. And maybe there is, I don't know, but I couldn't think of anybody. So that made it even worse. I was like, oh, Christ, you know. <laughs> not, all, not all me, I'm, I'm going to work with Mario. I'm the first Western guy. If I'm the composer that breaks Mario, like my kids will never speak to me again, you know. I mean, not that they speak to me that much in the first place, right? But, you know, it's like, oh, Christ, it's just going to be a disaster. So, uh, you know, yeah, there was all that going through my head at once. It was like a bit of a thing. It was like, you know, it's equal parts scary and equal parts exciting. Right. Now, what, what inspired your move out to L.A.? Yeah, I want to work a movie, so I guess that was my. I think being here is important when you're unknown in movies. Mm-hmm. So you know, I'm doing a little bit now. I did a movie last year with uh, the King's Daughter, which is not out yet. I've done quite a few shorts, just a documentary. So I'm keen to do some movie stuff. I'd like to just do anything media, really. Like I like, you know, I think that a lot of composers these days call themselves media composers, and I guess that's what I'd like to be. I just like to do different stuff. So it'd be nice to do. I mean, I love doing games; it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd like to do some movie stuff, some TV stuff. You name it. I, I just like to have a good crack at all of it. Right. Now, would you consider yourself in a freelance capacity? Yeah. So what was that like now, you know, switching back to, let's even go to ukulele. I mean, wow, who would have thought that game would have been made in the first place and you have the opportunity to score that? That was with some old friends from Rare, was it not? Oh, yeah. So it, that's like my best mates, right? That's all the, all the old gang from Rare. So it's a core team from Banjo, really. Yeah. Apart from Greg. So, um, yeah, I mean, like, you know, that made total sense. And it was brilliant fun. Like, you know, us working together again was just like the old days, all the Mickey taking, piss taking, just the same as it always always was. What the same nicknames, the same jokes, nothing's changed in like 18 years. It was exactly the same. Mm-hmm. So we've all just got kids and mortgages now, right? And wives. Um, but um, no, that was brilliant fun. That's awesome. That's a fantastic story. And the game turned out fantastically. And, you know, a lot of people that, you know, I'll see on Twitter, uh, a lot of people will take the screenshot of them playing ukulele. Now it's available on Nintendo Switch, so they're sending you that screenshot, or they're sending you a screenshot of them just getting Mario plus Rabbids, and they'll always say, like, I'm excited to dive in and, and hear Grant Kirkhope's soundtrack. And you're always extremely active and extremely kind on that social media. You take the time to like or answer, retweet, whatever that, you know, whatever the case may be. How how do you find the time to be interactive with your fans, and why do you find that time? Uh, you know, I don't like the word fans. I mm-hmm. don't feel like I'm the kind of person that has fans. I know that sounds a bit bizarre, but I kind of think we're all just friends together. <laughs> I hate that. I hate that kind of ego thing. I ne- I've never liked that. I, I just, I'm just an old, I'm just a guy that writes tunes for a living, right? That's what I do. Mm. Just the way it works. Um, but on the Twitter thing, like I really try super hard to reply to people and like you say, like it all on retweet it because I think that, you know, if I, like my hero, right, is John Williams, right? The composer, he's mm-hmm. my complete hero. And if I could send a tweet to him and he liked it, I would be over the moon. It would make my life, right? It literally make my life worth it. You know, I would love it. Or he just said, thanks. If I said, John, I think you're fantastic. He said, thanks, Grant. I would keep that tweet for the rest of my life. You know, and I'm, you know, I'm by no means of that stature. But I think if people want to talk to me, the least I can do is to try to do that for them. Mm-hmm. You know, if that makes them happy, then that's great. And I, I really appreciate anybody who wants to, I guess, I don't want really to use, use the word support, but likes my tunes that's great right i mean that's the best ever that's the best ever so and also i'm because i'm sat at a computer like for a million hours a day you know in the, the in the minute it takes for pro tools to save i'll go on twitter and answer a few replies and then go back to do my, back to my work so i'm always sat at the computer so i'm always generally there um looking at twitter you know in between my, what i'm working stuff so you know i do try really hard to do that and like you know i always think that for any artist, right, of any persuasion, right, a, a composer, writer, photographer, whatever, right, if, if just one person in the world likes something that comes out of your head, I think that's pretty special. Mm. And that's, that's never going to get tiring for me. I'm never going to get used to that. Like, the fact that something, that, a tune that I may, I may write, might someone might really like it. Like, that's never going to get 
old to me. You know, you do get the, the odd times where, you know, you get super sad stories that people email me and say, you know, when I was a kid, my mother had cancer and I, we, we, sat, we sat and played Banjo-Kazooie just before she died together. You know, and like that stuff, it's so heartbreaking and it's, it, it just touches you in such a way that I think if I could be a, the tiniest part of that that makes, makes that kid's mother smile some, for some silly tune that I've written, you know, that is like, there's nothing like that. That is what it's all about. Um, you know, so, you know, you get from that to just people just like it because it, it makes them remember a time when they were a kid. And also something that I've learned, I guess, quite recently is that um, I think that in that kind of age, age from about five to 15 or something, that you know, in that kind of age group, like you always remember that stuff for the rest of your life. So like, I can remember the cartoons that I watched and the theme tunes that I listened to when I was a kid. And I can sing them right now, word for word, note for note, you know. That stuff sticks with people forever. So I guess because I wrote some game, I worked on games back in the day or even now, Rabbids, Mary Rabbids, that people will play when they're little kids. They'll probably remember that forever. Mm. You know, that, that music will stick in their minds forever and remind them of that time they played it with their dad or their brother or whatever. They fought over it and, I don't know, broke the TV. I mean, you know what I mean? That, that stuff that it just, it's, you don't realise sometimes that that, that stuff sticks with people. And I think that that took me a long time to understand that. I used to think, what, what's, what people talk about? To get, but, you know, I've come to realise now that, you know, those things stick forever. And they do, they do with me. So not, I'm no different to anybody else, you know. Now, granted, it's on a much smaller scale, but I think that's a huge reason of why, you know, Sam and I do a podcast is because we hear it all the time of just – Hey, you know, I'm listening in the car and you guys get me through on the way to work or whatever the case may be. And even stuff like that is special because you could choose to listen to literally anything in the world, but you're choosing to listen to our show. And so I'm, I'm with you kind of on that mindset. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, no, I really agree with that. I think sometimes you don't realize how you can just touch that one person in a, in a certain way and it, it just sticks with them forever. And I, I think that it has taken me a little bit of time to get to, to kind of get to grips with that and realize that, you know, and like I do sometimes think, Oh my God, you know, is that a big, a big burden to bear? But it isn't a big burden to bear. It's just, it's, if that, if people like something like that, that's fantastic. Now this might sound like the most obvious question of all time, but you've been recognized with BAFTA nominations, nominations from the IFMCA. What is it like, you know, given your work and your passion that you pour into your projects, what's it like to be recognized on that scale? You know, it's spectacular. You know, there's nothing like getting a pat on the back. <laughs> and there really is. And I think because I've played in bands for so many years, playing in front of like big audiences, and, you know, I do kind of miss that a little bit. That kind of like people clapping and going, hey, that was great, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess for me, it does mean an awful lot. I guess other people maybe not. I remember, but, you know, if Tim Stamp, who was a boss of Rare, would say to me, Grant, that's a great thing. I'd be on Cloud Nine for like a week, you know. <laughs> yeah. I think people forget what it's like just to say to people, well done, mate, well done, that's a great, you know, I was to, if I, if people send me music and stuff or they do covers of my stuff, I always say, well done, that's a great, I, you know, I was, I'm always encouraging because usually they're really brilliant and I like, I, it's fantastic to, to see it. So I try and pass on what I like, you know, and for people to recognize your work, your peers or other stuff, that's pretty spectacular. You know, um, it's nice to get, I get, I mean, awards at everything, so but it's nice to, it's, you know, I can't deny that it's nice to get, nominated or what have you especially when I got the BAFTA nomination that was incredible mm-hmm. um, you know so um, well real quick for folks that don't know what BAFTA is could you talk a little bit about that BAFTA is like I guess it's like the equivalent of the British Oscars 
So it's like the British Academy of Film and Television Arts. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess it's a, the British equivalent of an Oscar. Gotcha. Uh, now, you know, to be able to compose for video games and, and even like you said, you're starting to dabble in film and that's where you ultimately want to go uh, a bigger capacity or bigger scale. Uh, you have to have a passion for that medium. Um, so what kind of games do you actually play now? You know what? I hardly play anything at the moment. I, d- I don't have the time. Mm-hmm. Like that's just been a slow progression to not having the time to do it. Uh, my son's fifteen and he's a massive gamer, so I do watch him, and that's that's handy. Mm-hmm. So I can easily say, "Just play this. I can watch and get the gist of it. I need to. I need to do a bit of studying." Mm-hmm. Um, but also, in some respects, I do like not hearing what other guys are doing in video games because it just means I pull it out my own head and I don't pull it from anywhere else. Um, or probably, put, well, I pull it from John Williams probably because he's my biggest idol, but. I think games-wise, I don't know whether I purposefully avoid listening to game sounds. I do listen to a few, um, but I want to make sure that I don't... I want to sound like me, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, not sound like anybody else. I mean, you know, people often say to me, it's that Kirkopian sound. And I kind of go, oh, yeah, it's funny, you know. Uh, you know, it's not really intentional. I just think that the music goes out of my head in a certain way, and it just sound, it's just got to sound like me. Um, and I, you know, I sort of think that when you hear Brian May play the guitar or Eddie Van Halen play guitar, you know it's them without even knowing what the track is. If you catch it on the radio, you just know it's there because the way they play the guitar is so distinctive. I can tell Eddie Van Halen's vibrato or Brian May's phrase, and I can tell it a mile away. Mm-hmm. And it's just the way they play, right? And I guess the way I write music is just the way I write music. Um, and some, you know, people keep saying, "Oh, it sounds like Grant Kirkup so much," you know, and like it, it's, it's sort of an accident that <laughs> it just comes out that way, um, you know. So. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess that's how I feel about that, yeah. Now, I guess it's my last question would be, you, you touched on it a little bit earlier when you had mentioned John Williams being your uh, your hero, your idol. Uh, you said you started to work in film. You've done some shorts. But overall, what's next for you? What can we expect from Grant Coker? Well, more games right now. Uh, as I said, I've just done a documentary thing, little thing. Awesome. Um, but as usual with um, uh Games, you can't really talk about it. So people do know that I am working on the DLC for Maya Rabbids right now. Right. So I'm doing that at the moment. Um, and right. I'm doing a uh, couple of other things I can't talk about yet. Right. Uh, as usual. Um, so, um, yeah, you know. Well, let, let me rephrase. the que- I, I guess I meant for like after after your career as a composer. Kind of what, what do you kind of envision yourself doing after you're done being a composer? I'm hoping that I'm not going to be doing it until I'm put in the box, right? <laughs> so I'm sort of hoping I'm just going to keep going. If John Williams is 86, so I hope if I get that far, I'll be happy. Um, I really can't do anything else. I really have zero talent. Uh, you're you're really else. underselling yourself. This entire interview, I'm, I'm putting my foot down. you got to start giving yourself more credit here, Grant. <laughs> well, you know, that's the only t- if it's a talent, it's the only one that I've got. Right. Like, I just I can't really do anything else. Like, all I can do is write music. So if, if I don't get hired anymore, I'll probably end up getting kicked out of the house because I can't pay the bills, right? So um, that's just what I do. You know, I can't believe that I sit here every day and write music when people are out there doing proper jobs, like digging up the road and, you know, all that stuff that they do and all the gardeners, all that stuff, all that really hard work they do. And I'm sat here writing bloody music. I can't believe it sometimes. Um, yeah. And I do tend to be miserable most of the time. That's <laughs> my, my wife and kids will soon tell you that. Um, I, I guess, you know, I, I, I kind of call it the curse of aspiration that I'm never going to be happy I don't, I don't, if I ever, you know, if I got to that point winning an Oscar, I'm still not going to be happy. Like, because you always look to the next thing. I think it's like that climbing a mountain, you, look, you get to the ledge, you look up, look above, there's another ledge to go to. Like, I'll never, ever get, you'll never get, I'll never do that. I'll always just keep going and going and going. Um, I just, 
and sometimes I kind of feel it's a bit of a curse because I just can't I can't be happy almost sometimes because I just want the next thing so much and I sometimes I don't even know what the next thing is <laughs> I just want to do the bigger and better than I did before or right. just better not even bigger um, and I still feel that I'm learning as a composer I still feel like I'm not where I want to be you know when I listen to John Williams Harry Potter soundtracks I can't believe how fantastic they are and not a single note have I written so far that equals anything close to what he does right so you know if I had one percent of his talent I'd be happy well I'm probably gonna be happy but I'd be pretty chuffed about it um you know so I just I think this curse of aspiration won't let me go I just I can't get rid of it and sometimes I wish that I could like I've got friends that do really normal jobs who are super happy with their lives and like all that stuff and I keep thinking look at me around this bloody music I just can't raise a smile half the time you know um so um yeah, I don't know. I think it's one of those things that I just, I'm just i just going to have to live with it. Believe uh, and I'll, I'll never not want to aspire to whatever the next thing is. Believe me, though, you make a lot of other people smile, whether that be through the compositions or you interacting on social media. You've had that impact on a lot of other people, know it or not. Just, you know, even two years ago, I sent you a tweet and you liked it. And I was like, oh, my God, it's the best day of my life. And it was like two years ago. Well, that's nice. I mean, you know, and I, you know. I try not to think about that stuff because I think you can drink your own Kool-Aid a little bit if you're not careful. And I don't want to, I just don't like that egotistical, I'm special thing. Um, I, I'm just a bloke that writes music, right? And if people like it, that's fantastic. And that's just the way it goes. Right. Uh, actually, my co-host would be very upset with me if I did not ask this question on his behalf. He right. wanted to, he specifically texted me about an hour ago and wants to know who your favorite James Bond is. You know what? I used to always sort of say Sean Connery, but I really like Daniel Craig. Like, I, I thought he was brilliant in Casino Royale. I mean, I, you know, I thought, oh, no, a blonde Bond is going to be terrible. But he was, I mean, I think he's a great Bond. Uh, and, I, you know, I kind of thought, and I do like Pierce Brosnan, too. I mean, the movie did last year was Pierce Brosnan was in it. Right. Um, you know, so, um, I don't know. I, I, mean, I guess because I'm old enough to remember Sean Connery, like, when he, when he first kicked off, I thought he was brilliant. Um, Roger Moore was funny, um, you know. Um, but I, Daniel Craig has been really brilliant, and, and I kind of when he said he was going to leave the role, I was kind of sad, thinking, oh, "I'm sad to see him go." You know, but I'm glad he's staying because uh, I think he's a great. He's been a brilliant Bond. He's he's brought a real kind of grittiness to it um, that I think it needed. Yeah, I think we both agree with you on on Daniel Craig. And granted, we're both you know we're both just about to be thirty, so we haven't been able to grow up with all the other Bonds. But right. I think we would. Kind of, I mean, we do a podcast on freaking movies, so I mean. We're pretty much we're pretty into that space, and I think we would both agree with you. Daniel Craig is a fantastic Bond, but thank you so much for taking the time. That has been our special bonus episode of We Podcast and We Know Things with, and I'm going to say it again, legendary composer Grant Coker. Grant, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. No worries, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, stay on the line for just one second, and everybody, we will see you this weekend for episode 82. <laughs>